As a marine ecologist specialising in conservation, research and outreach, Lawrence has spent years working with wildlife, the ocean and the public to create relationships between them. Currently, he leads all shark-related matters with the Humane Society International's office here in Australia. Larry headed the campaign to take the Australian government to court to end the deliberate culling of sharks in the Great Barrier Reef. And he won. Not only is he a brilliant and humble advocate for sharks, but an excellent mouthpiece for so many misconceptions and ideas, which is why I wanted to talk to him today, to ask some of the more broad questions. Can sharks smell human blood? Have their numbers boomed out of control? And how does one survive in a position like his, taking on governments and winning, all on behalf of sharks? It's a segment worth listening to and a cause worth being involved in. from Sydney which is only an hour's flight south of me but thank god I'm not there because you guys have more restrictions than we do up here I think. Hi Larry how are you? (laughs) Yeah good Maddie how are you? Thanks for having me. (laughs) No worries at all. So you currently work with for however you want to say it run Australia's Humane Society's segment of shark stuff which is called Shark Champions if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, yeah, Humane Society International. Uh, we work on all kinds of stuff, um, animal welfare, environmental conservation, animal agriculture. We do a lot with the bushfires and things like that. But, yeah, I'm the marine ecosystems uh, manager and, yeah, working working on sharks. So my first question for you, which is going to be a depressing one for you, how often do you get to get in the water? <laughs> oh, yeah, God, that is a depressing one for me. Um, not, not nearly as often as I'd like for work, maybe once every six months, but I, I'd like to spend my free time in the water. So that, that's where I, that's where, that's when I can get there. That's good. I feel like the most common thing people think as soon as they see an Instagram page like mine is that they want to become a marine scientist so that they can be in the water with sharks. And the first thing I say is I never finished school for one. And for, for two, I'm pretty sure that's not what they do all day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, it's a lot of emailing. It's a lot of meeting with politicians, but um, but what keeps us going is is the good work that we do, and it's awesome to be able to talk like to people like you and and, and work with people that are in the field. Because while I'm not getting in the water, and I'd like to see more of the ocean, um, what's going on in the issue certainly keeps you motivated, and, I, and I'm sure you'll understand that. Yeah, and I definitely want to talk to you about some of the amazing things you're doing, and some of them have had just like really amazing effects and actually achieved things. But I want to know, first of all, there's a lot of hurdles and there's a lot of times where things don't happen the way you want them to. How do you keep yourself positive in moments like that? Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. Honestly, it's tough some days. Uh, I think, and I'll probably share, share this feeling with everyone else that works in environmental conservation these days uh, and even science, because a lot of times you do, you work your whole career to come to come up with a solution or, or, or you or you discover something new and then half a society makes it a political issue and, and doesn't believe what you're doing. Uh, and then if you work in environmental conservation, um, 
you're you're coming you're butting heads with um, opposition all the time that are out for um, putting profits over the environment or putting uh, or you know or you know it's just just human greed is really really the, my biggest enemy in what I do in a day to day basis and and that is a that is a tough monster to be up against. Um, so yeah yeah you're right you're absolutely right it is tough but what really really makes it worthwhile for me is first of all meeting meeting with people meeting with like-minded people talking to you maddie talking to um passionate people that are learning about these things that want to get into it um talking to people doing q a sessions at different film screenings and things like that and answering questions about sharks and and seeing how much people out there actually do care about these issues that really motivates me uh and the last thing is is when i think about and I, and I understand that I'm so fortunate to be able to say this, that when I think about when I've had a tough week, when I've had a long work day, it makes me happy to think that the beneficiary of the fruits of my labor is no, not one single person. It's the environment and it's the sharks. And if, if I'm having a tough work day and I can think, oh, well, I did it for the sharks, then, then that makes it worth it. Damn. I don't know how, but we got to somehow figure out how to put all that on a T-shirt so I can just wear that T-shirt when I get a little bit down. <laughs> all right. That was amazing. And now let's talk about something really cool you did. When you took our government to court, um, tell me, just give me like the brief, the brief summary of that whole situation. Yeah. All right. Okay. So yeah, we took the Queensland government to court um, over shark culling within the boundaries of the Great Barrier Reef. We realized we had a small window of opportunity. When you look at the 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 mandate for which by which the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority was founded, one of their most basic tenets is to pervert, preserve the ecological viability of the reef, and they are also the organization that. Um, approved a permit for Queensland Agriculture and Fisheries to um, to implement the lethal shark control within the boundaries of the reef. So we said, well, okay, well, there's a conflict right there. Um, approving that permit is in direct violation of that other mandate. So we took that case to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal saying, hey, look, this isn't right for two reasons. Uh, and we shouldn't be allowed to lethally cull sharks within the reef because one, it's a detriment to the to the ecological viability of the reef. I mean, it, you can't you can't pretend that you're preserving an ecosystem in its natural state if we're removing the apex predators. We talk about this kind of thing all the time. How the reef the sharks are the doctors of the reef, or they're, they're the ones that keep everything in balance. So so that's that's inherently a misguided um, notion. And second, and one what, another one I like to talk about a lot is that shark culling doesn't actually pr- protect people. It doesn't lend anything to public safety. It's it's only a false sense of security. Um, so we took these two points to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. Um, well, actually, first we tried to meet with Queensland Agriculture and Fisheries and see if we could find a compromise. Uh, and they and they replied to us that they're not interested in any solution that doesn't involve killing sharks. Um, so we are obvi- we were obviously not happy with that. So we said we'll see you in court. Um, it was damn. <laughs> what a burn. <laughs> <laughs> Did you actually get to say that? <laughs> uh, no, I think I think it was our lawyers that got to say that and Dang. said, well, well, 
Yeah, well, obviously that position for my organization is completely untenable because we're not going to allow any, we're not going to allow any killing or 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 hurting of animals. Um, see we you have, in court. Yeah, we have if we have any say so. So we will see you yeah. in court. And it was it, and that was um, early 2019 when that court case took place in Brisbane. And oh, Maddie, I wish you could have been in there with us because it was so great to see how. Uh, confident and arrogant uh, QDAF and Gabrumpo were at the beginning of the case and just as as each one of their points started to crumble and melt away under the under the harsh questioning by our solicitors uh, I mean getting 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 QDAF officials up on the stand having to admit under oath that shark calling doesn't protect people and, and watching them sweat up there was probably the the, the most liberating and, and, and wonderful moment oh, that I've had working here. It, it sounds was, like uh, a Christmas all in itself, but it's just like it was, amazing. <laughs> and you know, you know what, this happens all the time though. People just, they look at these government organizations or fisheries. For me, it was looking at a fishery and just thinking what a, what a gargantuan task to take on that fishery. And then slowly you start to realize that you can have some pushback. The people that are involved in it usually have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. And that it is quite possible for you to have an impact there. And the second you start to realize that is is a really amazing, liberating moment. And it sounds like that's what happened there. And just the amount of work that you put in leading up to it to even discover that there was legal grounds there for you to be able to do this. It must have been really intense for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a long it was a long time building up. And, and even, you know, you have to wait six months for your day in court. And then you have to wait three more months if there's an appeal like we had. and and all that and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, we, we did win the, we did win the case. Uh, it was a, it was a tribunal of three judges that all ruled in our favor said they found our evidence that it was a detriment to the reef and it didn't provide any public safety was overwhelming. I mean, we didn't, we didn't just win. We, to use it, to use it an American sports term, we, we, we knocked it out of the park. And it was, I, I knew you were going to say that for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for that. Um, that is so amazing. And I have a quote from you here that you said the day that you found out that you won. You said, since the 1960s, sharks have been shot dead in the Great Barrier Reef. Today, this has ended. This is a massive victory for sharks and marine wildlife. And I imagine there's so many Australians out there that have no idea that this even happened in the Great Barrier Reef. And that's just amazing that you were able to just, I'd probably, probably be the first organization and person to really take this issue on and take it that far as to take them to court, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, especially on shark calling. I mean, it's, well, I mean, for two reasons, right? So it's been going on for so long that people just thought it was a part of, you know, you know, whatever. And that's what keeps us safe in the water. The other thing was that people don't actually realize what 500 dead sharks a year plus does does to the reef or what that even looks like. I mean, you can throw around all these statistics all the time, uh, 20, 20 dead dolphins, uh, catching six humpback whales a year. But until you actually see the images, until you actually realize what that means in it, means in an ecological perspective not not even or an animal welfare perspective i mean it, it, it is it is really shocking so yeah you know i'm just just happy to have been part of it and um and yeah and i don't know if you want to get more into this but there's still lots of work to be done even within the reef and, and we're still working on it 
I mean, and now we know that we can we can have a win like this. I feel like it's something that you can look into. Um, and, you know, you feel better tackling these things. Did it, was there any pushback after that or were you successful? And actually, what did, explain for the people listening, what that actually meant when you won that court case. So what did the government have to change? What did they have to do after that? So the government was allowed to continue the shark control program within the reef, but it now had to, it now has to be managed non-lethally. So what that means is um, the drum lines that are set in the reef, there's 173. They now have to be managed. Um, they have to be checked daily. Um, any uh, non-target animals are immediately re- immediately released on the spot. Any target sharks are tagged and relocated uh, as if it was a, sort of a smart drumline trial. Um, uh, the other thing that they have to do is they have to more closely monitor tiger shark populations within the boundaries of the Great Barrier Reef um, and implement a smart drumline trial. So for, for listeners that are unaware of the difference between traditional drumlines and smart drumlines, smart drumlines are designed to be non-lethal. Um, like, I, like I just described, if, an, if a shark is caught on a smart drumline, it is to be released or tagged and relocated depending on the species and the size. Um, and obviously, there's still we still have animal welfare concerns. We're still concerned about having baited hooks in the water near beaches and, and so on and so forth. But in practice, smart drum lines are are much better than than lethal drum lines, and and we will take that step wherever wherever we can get it. You know what I mean? So yeah. Um. So that so that was what was determined by the court case itself. And just for people so that people know the whole thing about culling sharks initially has always been about protecting people that are going swimming which for me has always been kind of crazy because the areas where they're culling people don't even go in the water because of the jellyfish that they have in those areas so the whole idea of even culling sharks is so redundant because you're not even having human implication there um which is another really interesting aspect of it so you asked for so little in that court case and i i still think it was an amazing win yeah, yeah. And and like I said, it, it did go to a federal appeal. I mean, Queensland had this amazing opportunity to say, you know what, let's we're, let's let's dive into our place in the world as a, a tourism hub where people want to come to see the, the, the beauty of Queensland's natural marine ecosystems and, and all the animals that they have there. And let's let's modernize this program. Let's make it safer for the public. Let's make it safer for our ocean environment. Let's make it better for the reef. But instead, they doubled down on their old program. Um, they appealed. Uh, we even won that appeal in the in the federal court case, which means they now have to pay all our court fees as well, which was amazing. Damn, another good burn. <laughs> another burn. They must just love you. <laughs> oh no, yeah, they they don't want to meet with me anytime soon. Um, <laughs> But yeah, but but the but the sad thing is, is that um, ever since the drum lines went back in, uh, and and Queensland said they were gonna or or they're supposed to be mo- um, managing them non-lethally, um, they're they're still killing sharks up there um, at about ninety ninety-seven percent mortality rate. So even with this win, we then have the issue of enforcement and not being able to trust the government even to go by their own laws and their own things that they, they have to do by the law, by this court case, we still have the issue of trying to enforce this win in that area. 
That's exactly right. So we're still working with the same um, team of solicitors that we had for the court case. They, they were excellent there. They're doing an excellent job now. And we're in the kind of consultation correspondence phase with um, the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority and Queensland Fisheries to make sure that they're implementing those court orders because at the moment they are not. Unreal. I, I just, it baffles me how much effort you have to go to to get the basic rights for marine life in this country in a place like the Great Barrier Reef, which brings all the money to this country because of its marine life. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's shocking. I mean, if you can't protect endangered species in a World Heritage Area, are are they really going to be safe anywhere? I just want to shatter everybody's opinion of the Great Barrier Reef right now and just say that there's legal shark fisheries inside the Great Barrier Reef. There's a government-run shark cull program inside the Great Barrier Reef. And only 33% of the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park is actually protected as a no-take zone where you can't fish. And those areas are not big enough to cover the home ranges of a lot of the target species of sharks. So really, nothing is safe when it comes to sharks in the Great Barrier Reef. No, you're, you're, unfortunately, you're absolutely right about that. And I'm not going to get hired by Tourism Queensland anytime soon, but I'm okay <laughs> with that. <laughs> Let's be honest, I'm not a post child for tourism here in Australia. Um, another really cool thing that I've been told HSI is up to at the moment is working with scallop hammerheads. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So like you said, one of the biggest fisheries in the uh, shark fisheries in the reef is a, is a large gillnet fishery. Now their, their target is things like Spanish mackerel um, and, and, and trevally and things like that, that you'll find at your fish and chip shop. But they also catch, I mean, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of scalloped hammerheads each and every year. And that's a critically endangered species. And another thing that Austra uh, many Australians don't understand is that a lot of those sharks go to the Asian fin trade. I mean, we finally have some regulations in place now where you at least have to bring the, the shark back to port hole so we can, at the very least, identify which species it is. And we can avoid loopholes in grading at, uh, that allow live finning and horrendous things like that happening on the reef. But Australia is still legally engaged in the shark fin trade. And that I think will be very surprising to many people. Absolutely. So I have a statistic here that fins from 370 tons of hammerheads are allowed to be exported from Australia to Asia to be used in shark fin soup. And many of these are caught in the Great Bay Reef. And I'm so sure there's so many people that aren't aware of that. Um, and that's just absolutely shocking. That's a shocking statistic. And I think one thing that most people in the shark world know about is shark finning and shark fin soup and we're often kind of looking overseas when it comes to that thing and, and placing a lot of blame there uh, i know personally from walking around the streets of hong kong and from what i've seen looking into these fisheries that we are a huge contributor of that here in australia and um, there's many fishing methods like like gill nets um, which is a, a type of fishing method similar to a shark net actually which can't not catch uh, something like a scalloped hammerhead because no matter how much they change the size in the net, the, the, the head structure of these amazing sharks gets stuck in that net. That's a real unfortunate reality of some of the fishing that goes on. So even when it's bycatch, it's just they're a really at-risk species. And I've only ever seen two scalloped hammerheads in the wild on the Great Barrier Reef when I was young. Have you ever seen any in the wild? 
I've never seen one alive in the wild, Maddie. Mm. They're very skittish animals, um, which is crazy. So yeah, yeah. Taking some action to get them kind of more protected. Are you targeting this fishery? Uh, this fishery. Yeah, so we got our first yeah, we got our first win this year by enacting what I was describing earlier, which is a policy called fins naturally attached, which closes a loophole that was formerly being used to live fin some species um uh, out at sea. So at least now they have to be brought back into shore like I was saying, so we can at, at least identify the shark and those fisheries can be managed more sustainably. Um but we definitely only see that as a first step. Uh, there's so many ways that the shark fin trade can be better regulated and uh, hopefully in time completely shut down. Uh, one thing that we're working on now is um, the actual trade. So they, so when, when, you tr- when you trade products uh, internationally, you have to use certain codes and certain things. And, and these codes that are used for shark products are so flimsy and so vague that it can be classified under a couple different different codes. Um, these codes can mean different things. No, really, no one's on the same page. The really shocking thing that I learned is we get better um, shark fin export data from airlines than we do from our own federal government because they're, it's that confusing and that undisorganized. So what we're trying to focus on now is at least getting some of those processes better so we can at least get a handle on some of the numbers of these animals, we don't even know how much shark fin we're exporting right now. And so there's a lot, a lot of work to be done there. And so, yeah, so a lot of what we're doing has to do with that. Do you ever get sick of doing the government's job for them? <laughs> well, someone's got to do it, Maddie. <laughs> um, and you, you actually, what is your official like degree, your area of study? Um, so I got, I did an undergraduate in marine science, and then I did a master's degree in tropical marine ecology. So what and I want to know of, is, is actually like when you were doing that, did you think that this is where you'd end up? Because you do a lot of stuff with legislation and a lot of stuff with, I don't know, basically telling the government you'll see them in court and being an all-round badass for sharks. <laughs> like, is this where you thought you'd end up? No, no, absolutely not. I thought maybe that I'd stay in academia. I thought, you know, maybe I'll go after my PhD. Um, But I found at some point, um, I mean, not to talk too much about myself, but I found that I wasn't very good at statistics. Um, But I was pretty good at writing and and pretty good at speaking. So I was, you know, so I kind of thought, all right, well, what's, what's a job where I can use what I've learned, but also write and speak and not just scientifically but i like speaking emotively i I don't know maybe you guys have picked this picked this up by now but i really love getting passionate about things that i'm talking about i love convincing people of, of my argument i love you know i love having spirited debates about things like this so i and this was kind and this job i kind of found kind of at the end of a road when i was in ecotourism for a while and i was bouncing around doing this and that trying to work in science but it's because it's not the easiest field to find work in um and this more or less fell into my lap and and i you know i really found that this was a perfect role for something that i was looking for i think i touched on it earlier that there's this massive divide in our society today between science and the public and as much as it's important to do that research and discover new things all the time 
you've got to bridge that gap. You've got to make that science palatable for society so that so that our research and all the hard work we do in, in our fields of study actually does something for our society. And so that's where I feel like I can slot in and, and, and help out. Amazing. And I, I do want you to talk about yourself because I know a lot of people listening are in marine science or marine biology or they're studying something that they're not quite sure of where it's going to go, what they're going to do, and they need to know that there are options out there other than becoming a dropout like myself and just finding a new home in Indonesia, <laughs> but actually doing something legitimate and, and kind of the methods that you're doing. I mean, we, we think about science, marine biology, and you just picture like someone in a wetsuit training dolphins at SeaWorld, and then you've got the whole other side of things, which is the legislation tackling and, you know, there's the activism and the filmmaking that I'm kind of involved in, and then there's all these other things. And I think it's important for people to just find out where they fit in that spectrum. And you are an excellent talker, and that's one of the reasons that I wanted to get you on here, which is why all the other questions that I have for you today are just, like, completely random, but I just really like <laughs> your answers. So well, I'm going to – I appreciate that. I'm going to ask you some random shark myths now, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, go for it. <laughs> All right, my favorite question that I'm sick of getting asked. Are sharks attracted to human blood? Uh, we, uh, I got this one all the time when I used to work um, out of cans and in Hawaii on dive boats. Because, you know, people would be so, you know, some, you know, you'd always get, you'd always get, you know, you'd probably get a boat of a hundred people and you get 75 of them didn't want to see a shark and 25 really did. Um, so I'd always ask who, you know, who wants to see a shark today, put your hands up and who does not want to see a shark today, puts your hands up. And I'd, you know, then I'd go, well, I've got great news for, for those of you that don't want to see a shark today because they only attack from behind. <laughs> That's horrible. I always got got a bit of a good laugh, but some people were more nervous about that. So I had to quickly follow up with, no, 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 you're going to be completely safe in the water. None of the sharks, none of the species that you might see today have any interest in people whatsoever. Um, And uh, yeah, and to answer your question specifically, are they attracted to blood? I mean, uh, yes, of course they are. They are. They're, They're apex predators. They're always on the lookout for that sort of thing. And they do have great senses of smell, but I think a drop in the ocean at 50 kilometers or some of those statistics that you hear is a little bit of a, a little bit of a, a you know, an exaggeration. Uh, yeah. I think, I think an intelligent, an intelligent, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, tell me what you think, Maddie, but an intelligent predator like that needs more than one drop of blood to be interested in something. And, haven't you seen Shark Week? <laughs> Have, haven't you seen Finding Nemo? because <laughs> if, if that movie's not accurate then i just don't know what we're fighting for anymore um no absolutely and i think a lot of these statistics and those things like sharks can sniff one drop of blood and a million drops of water like they're true but they're designed to tell us about how amazing the sensory capabilities of sharks are when it comes to human blood out of my own experience of having nosebleeds like my sinus ruptured underwater and all kinds of stuff like cutting myself accidentally underwater when i'm on actual shark dives Nothing reacts. There's no trigger. There's nothing wonderful in human blood. Maybe it's just my blood. I don't know. Maybe there's too much like Vegemite in there, but there's nothing <laughs> in human blood that tends to get them to be like, ooh, a human, to get them excited. Fish blood, however, you will see them have a reaction to that. And yeah, right. Yeah, and more, more importantly, I know that 
what sharks are actually reacting to more than the blood is the cut in your skin that allows the bioelectric impulse from your heartbeat to go through the water a bit faster and a bit stronger. Right. Okay. So they're yeah, picking up yeah, on your electricity. Sense. Yeah. So that one's a bit of, that's, I always like asking people that question because it's like the first thing that you hear about sharks. So don't worry if you get a paper cut underwater. Um, <laughs> so being stuck in this wonderful country of Australia, we are surrounded by a lot of interesting characters that I won't call idiots on my podcast, but I just did. And we have this whole thing going around right now that shark populations have boomed out of control and they're everywhere. And we have this same kind of evidence brought to us every time we hear this, that shark populations have boomed out of control, um, where we have footage from the back of a trawler or the back of a fishing boat where there's hundreds and hundreds of sharks. And this is their reason for sharks being out of control. Plague proportions, right? Plague proportions. Yes, which is kind of like saying there's an overpopulation of bogans if you go to the local Hungry Jacks and see them all there. So <laughs> explain this to me. Um, have populations boomed because of what fishermen are seeing congregated around their boats? Um, absolutely not. Um, shark populations, especially on the east coast of Australia, have declined precipitously over the last 50 to 60 years, ever since the you know advent of industrial fishing. So... I think, right, what we have here is a classic case of um, shifting baselines or or only reporting on what you can see. Uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna call the, those those people that you're talking about that talk about sharks and plague proportions wrong, because as I as I've already been over in this podcast, I'm sure they spend more time on the water than I do, and I'm sure they see much more many more sharks than I do. But the thing you have to remember is that these are. Per- almost perfectly evolved um, predators. Uh, they've, been in the, they've been in the water for 350, 400 million years, you know, doing their thing. And they've, perf- they've absolutely perfected that. And what sharks are best at, and Maddie, you'll understand this from your time with tiger sharks, because I think they, they, they're the perfect example of this. They're kind of lazy. And they only and they go they go after the easiest feeding opportunity they can find, right? They don't want to stress themselves out. They want to just find whatever's easy and, and whatever's going to be highly successful. So, so, true. so what's easier, catching a healthy, really, really fast school of fish or following a trawler that's throwing hundreds of kilos of dead shit over the sides as they go back into port? Wait a minute, Larry. Are you trying to tell me that Gary from my local prawn trawler is wrong and doesn't have a scientific degree in shark population management? What? What I'm saying, Maddie, is that those two, the fact that sharks are in precipitous decline, which any shark researcher will tell you, and the fact that fishermen are seeing huge amounts of sharks behind their boats are not mutually exclusive. Those things are both happening at the same time. Sharks, their their normal diet, their prey has been depleted in the wild because of our fishing behavior, and now they're following trawlers and fishing boats and everything they can to get an easy feed so yeah sharks are declining precipitously they're they're in a really bad way and fishermen are seeing more sharks than ever and both of those things are happening at the same time okay you knocked that out of the park um (laughs) (laughs) that 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 was perfect that was the answer that i wanted and then my other favorite thing that these distinguished gentlemen say is that we need to let them fish sharks. Let them fish sharks 
because there are so many attacks happening that we need to open the quotas for fisheries. I find this such an amazing argument, mainly because they're not commercially fishing great whites, so they're not going to have an impact on any of the sharks that are even implicated with attacks on humans. But it just seems like such an agenda-fueled thing for them to demand as well. Let us go fishing. Let us make money off fishing sharks because there's too many of them and because people are getting attacked and we can save lives without fishing. Yeah, I think the, I think the other thing you should mention is is the depredation um, issue where wreck fishers are going out there and trying to pull up their flatheads and they're getting bit in half. Well, that's exactly what I you know what we were just talking about. How the sharks have identified um, easy feeding opportunities, but to but to address the distinguished gentleman, as he put it, <laughs> that, that would like that would like to restart shark fisheries. Well, well, that's only going to send us further down this road of marine ecosystem imbalance i mean if you to take to remove apex predators they're the ones keeping everything in, in balance that's just gonna just gonna throw a further wrench into everything and that that does that's not even close to addressing the problem of of the you know shark human interactions that we've had this year especially in australia i know i know that that you and your listeners will understand that there's been eight fatalities this year and that's much higher than average but if you look at the actual amount of incidents, those are bang on average. And so it has nothing to do with the abundance of sharks in our waters. That has nothing to do with that, the, the amount of these incidents. The, the, the amount of incidents have, ha, have to do with more people entering the water. Um, and it could be some other things that go into um, differences in where their prey is moving, whether it's because climate change and, and currents are shifting or a decrease of their natural prey in their natural environment. Um, so to, to, to assume that restarting shark fisheries would solve this problem is, is based on, not based in science, it's based in absolute lunacy. Perfectly said. Uh, my next question is one that I get all the time that I honestly never know how to answer. I know the basics, but I feel like people always want more. What can the average person do to help sharks? Yeah, yeah, that's a good one too. Um, we've had these, uh, we've had a couple of ones like this in our Q Q and A's during our screenings. Um, and what helps me in my job, and and I will preface this by saying I know that this is not the most exciting answer that your listeners are, listeners are going to be all excited about going going and getting involved in. But honestly, signing petitions they help me in what I do day to day. If I'm meeting with um, a council member that I that I want to 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 have a trial season on their on this beach in our local community without a shark net, they will respond to numbers that signed a petition that said, "Hey, I don't want this in my community. This is not acceptable to me." Um, letters to politicians at any level. Uh, the the more the more we bring this issue to the fore, uh, uh, the, the the more politicians will will respond. Um, Sharks have been used as a political football here in this country for way longer than I've been here, and 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 getting involved and in telling those politicians what what you think. You might think that you're only one person. You might think that you're only one vote, but I guarantee you that they've heard it from someone else. And so the more people they hear it from, the the more and more difference that they're going to have. And so I would say, signing the petitions um, on your sites, go, going on to sharkchampions.org.au, signing up to be a shark champion and, and getting all the petitions that, that we put out on that 
Our petitions range from shark calling to shark fisheries, um, um, protecting threatened species and all kinds of things like that. So you'll find all kinds of petitions on there like that. That's really, really helpful. Uh, another thing that people can do, I know a lot of uh, a lot of people love seafood. I, I enjoy seafood myself. And it's about making sustainable choices. Uh, we're not asking you to completely cut out seafood from your life. Maybe don't eat sharks. Maybe cut flake out of your life because that's totally cut flake out of your life. I'm going to say not that. Necessary. <laughs> totally not necessary. But there are other fisheries that impact sharks that aren't necessarily fishing for sharks, but as you know, will definitely impact them. So making smart, sustainable choices, choosing farmed seafood when it's available and, and it's healthy and even, and the farming is sustainable, that can be really, really helpful. Uh, and yet, and choosing others, other sustainable seafood choices. I know the Australian Marine Conservation Society runs a great program for that called Good Fish. I think if you just search Good Fish on Google, um, you'll be able to do that. And if you're someone that um, orders uh, orders seafood at your fish and chip shop or at a restaurant, a lot of times if the seafood is cooked, they don't have to tell you what it is or where it's from. So it's important for us as consumers to be asking those types of questions. You know, oh, where, uh, where where did this where did this um where did this red snapper come from? Because I know in New South Wales it's kind of a threatened species, but I know if it's from Queensland, it's a bit better managed. Right. Uh, and, you know, and, you know, asking questions like that, putting the onus on the providers. I mean, we have power as consumers, right? I mean, we can choose where to spend our money. So, yeah. And even if um, even if you don't eat fish, guys, like if you've got family that we've all got family members that do um, and, right, and exactly. that don't care about this stuff and getting them aware of this stuff, they might need to hear it from something a bit more official than you to care about it. So there's a great resource for that kind of thing, too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Um, this, this is awkward, Larry, but I just went on to the Shark Champions website and signed up because I was <laughs> while you were talking, I was like, Shit, yeah, Maddie, I'm, not, I'm not, I'm not really sure you were a shark advocate before that. So I'm, I'm glad you finally did. Damn. Now I can finally start changing the world. Um, but anyway, I wanted to basically tell everybody listening how easy it was and now I'll get updates so that I can find things. So I'm going to include that into the notes of this podcast so everybody can go follow this amazing work and sign that. Um, that's awesome. Thank you so much. Of course. And my final question for you, which I think is a pretty big one. If you could have just one law changed in Australia right now, the sharks, what would you like to see? Oh, man. Well, how big can this law? Wait, change one law or enact something new? Oh, I mean, how about, yeah. How about Australia? How about Australia is a com, uh, uh, all uh, within our, we call it so 200 nautical miles out of Australia, right? That's the jurisdiction of Australia. And I would like 200 miles around every Australian coastline to be a shark sanctuary. Um, <laughs> Way to keep it realistic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Something more realistic then. Um, yeah, no, I, I think, like that one. That's a good one. But yeah, give me one more realistic one and then we'll go back to that. You know, I... I know that it's been something we've been all been working on a long time is this, this shark calling issue. Um, but I really believe that when we've got people like, like, like what you're do, everything you're doing, um, our, our legal challenges, um, the, the hearts and minds that, that we're going to be able to change and reach with some of the things that we have going on. 
I, you know, I honestly think that we're close to a tipping point and we, and we need everyone to come together. We saw what, 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 what can be done in WA. I think New South Wales were really not that far off. Um, and then Queensland is, is only going to be the last one. You get a, you get a new government in Queensland that could be done within a couple of years. And you mean, I, I think, you know, it's easy to say this from my perspective, but I think we're closer than we've ever been on shark calling. And if we could, if we could remove lethal shark control uh, f- from from this nation, I, I, I think that would be my choice. That is awesome. And you know, the shark sanctuary thing, the first one ever was Palau in 2008. They declared all their waters an official shark sanctuary, which means you can't catch them, kill them for any reason, for anything, any shark. And it's not unrealistic and it, it's it's amazing and it should be a thing and it should happen here. I mean, you're not allowed to kill dolphins and we have an equally important predator to protect. And the whole reason we have fisheries and certain things in Australia is to contribute to foreign trades of their fins and because we eat the meat. And we've proven time and time again that the meat is not good for us, that it's getting sold to unsuspecting mothers in Australia as well who are putting their unborn children at risk because of the levels of mercury in the sharks, which we will discuss in a separate podcast. But all this stuff is is like it it should just be a reality, but unfortunately we have to keep fighting for it. But thank goodness that we have people like you to do so. Thank you so much for everything you do. Oh, you, you're, uh, of course you're welcome. I don't, you know, this is one of those jobs that you don't have to be thanked for because, because you know why you're doing it and what you're doing it. And I'm sure you'll agree with me, Maddie. And I want to, I want to echo that right back at you because because you do so much for the sharks and you do so much for the ocean and and I'm proud to know you and count you as a friend and 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 thank you for everything you do. Oh, dude, thank you. My head's big enough though. I think you deserve some praise. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much, and I'm really excited to see what comes next and to be able to help in any way possible. And everybody listening, please check out the uh, Humane Society, International Humane Society, Australia, and they're amazing campaign that they're doing for sharks right now and i guess i look forward to our next podcast which will be the next time you take them to court yeah (laughs) yeah stay tuned stay tuned watch this space thank you so much have a good afternoon i hope you get in the water soon oh thanks so much maddie thanks very much